0: Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, January 12th. We begin with a conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. We're speaking with Mercedes about Monday's announcement on the upcoming cabinet shuffle by the Liberal government and if this means we can expect a federal election sooner rather than later.
1: Did you break the rules and gather with extended family over the Christmas holidays? According to a new poll, a large percentage of Canadians ignored government guidelines and restrictions in place to bend the COVID curve. We look at the results of the survey with Ipsos CEO Daryl Bricker.
0: And then we head stateside to discuss the ongoing movement to impeach President Donald Trump. We get the latest from a professor of public and international affairs from Brown University.
1: And finally, will the Calgary Stampede be back in the saddle this summer? We get an update from the interim CEO of the Calgary Stampede, Dana Pierce. 6.09 on the morning news from discussing the political unrest south of the border to a slow vaccine rollout here in Canada. Global News, Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block Mercedes Stevenson joins us now. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Good morning. Well, let's start with the uh, breaking news yesterday, late day about the liberal, Liberal cabinet shuffle. Sources say Navdeep Bains, who has served as Canada's Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry since 2019, will not run... In the next election, and he will be part of the shuffle. What what other moves can we expect at this time, Mercedes?
2: Yeah, so this is this is a pretty major cabinet shuffle. It's a lot of the really big portfolios that are moving. So with Navi Baines planning not to run in the next election, the Liberals are taking him out of cabinet. They're they're taking people out of cabinet um, who don't want to run because they're starting to gear up to go into election mode. Uh, And that means you want a cabinet that's going to run and be willing to throw their hats in the ring. When Baines departs, He's going to be replaced in his file by uh, François-Philippe Champagne, who is currently the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Now, who goes to Foreign Affairs? Well, that will be the Transport Minister, Marc Garneau, mm-hmm. who is the running transport throughout the pandemic. And then there will be a new face joining Cabinet today, and that is Omar Al-Ghabra. Uh, he will be coming in as the new Transport Minister. There could be changes beyond that. I'm not sure. Those were the ones uh, that I was able to confirm... Uh, We were actually able to break it at Global uh, from a number of sources last night that 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 was what was happening, that Baines was leaving politics. um, And that's actually quite surprising in some ways. I've talked to people close to Navdeep Baines who say he's wanted this for a while. He wants to go into the private sector. He wants to make some money. He wants to do his own thing. Um, But he was the political lieutenant for Toronto. I mean, that's a big, big job. It's mm-hmm. a very important job for the Liberals because they have a lot of seats there. And I know some people were so shocked from this that we heard from some of his former uh, senior advisors who were calling us and saying, you know, your information can't be right. There's no way that Nav is wow. leading politics. Um, but he is.
0: OK, so you said right at the outset, this is all as the Liberals gear up for an election. Do you, do you think this means then we perhaps might have an early election coming?
2: Well, I mean, in in a minority situation, it's never technically early in that they can go at any time. What I think it means is that they are looking to go potentially sooner rather than later. And we've seen the hints ramping up on that. Uh, So when I interviewed the PM in December, he talked about how there will be an election before 2023. We hadn't heard that before. Then it accelerated. He gave a radio interview uh, a few days ago in which he said um you know that he expects essentially there could be an election in 2021 and what i'm hearing from senior liberals is that there is a good chance they could choose to go to the polls after the budget we don't know exactly when that budget's going to come down it's usually february or march Uh, i think a lot of that will depend on where they're at with the vaccinations for COVID. um but these are all signs that they're getting ready to go into an election this year at some point, it could be fall. uh, But what I'm hearing and what my colleagues are hearing at this point is that it is likely that, what they'd like uh, potentially a spring. The question is, how do you do that? Do you take yourself down on the budget and say, um, we want to propose such major things here, major changes, we're gonna seek a mandate from Canadians Or do you wait it out and uh, put something that's a poison pill in that budget to try to force more than one opposition party to vote against you, which is what has to happen for the government to be brought down the way the seats are divided right now?
1: Hmm. On the other side, uh, Mercedes, when Aaron O'Toole is crowned, uh, you know, leader of the, the PC's, it was interesting because one of their strategies was to make sure that Canadians had the chance. Let's put them up front and center. Let's have Canadians get to know Aaron O'Toole. And then the whole pandemic got a little thick for everyone. And I'm wondering if the Conservatives are on you know solid ground and they'd be prepared for something like this spring. What are your thoughts on the preparedness of the Conservatives?
2: I think they'll be prepared in terms of their infrastructure, right? So they'll have their campaign team ready to go. They'll have their platform ready to go. I know that they are working on the platform right now. I know they are figuring out those campaign teams. I guarantee you uh, yesterday's announcement will have kicked them into high gear mm-hmm. if they had slowed down at all after some of the, the nail biters in the fall where we weren't really sure if the government might potentially be trying to take itself down or not. Um, but the big challenge is the one you identified. Do Canadians know Aaron O'Toole? Um, And the polling would suggest that they don't know him that well. And if you're talking about a pandemic election where there can't be big events and you can't be traveling all over the place and getting to meet people, that would likely favor an incumbent because people recognize the name and name recognition is very important to politics.
0: Mercedes, let's change gears a little bit and talk about vaccines. It seems to be, you know, one of the the couple of very big things that everybody has on their minds right now. Canada seemed to be at the forefront, you know, when it really came down to it that we had ordered all these vaccines, but there's a lot of criticism now that the rollout program has been slow and the provinces are not getting the vaccine or as much as they need or want.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting. We had uh, Dominic LeBlanc on the show on the weekend. He's the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, so he manages federal-provincial relationships. Um, and he basically said that he thought that the premiers who said that were being a bit simplistic. That yes, they were going to run out uh, in coming days, that there are more shots coming in coming days. And he sort of poo-pooed that and said, you know, they know that they yes, they're going to run out, but they also know that they're going to have more shots almost right away. Um, so it was interesting. It's sort of that federal-provincial split we've seen a little bit. There's no doubt the rollout has been slow. Um, to give you a relative example, I mean, when I did the show on Sunday we would vaccinated under 250,000 Canadians. I don't know what the updated number is as of today on Tuesday. Um, but Israel was vaccinating that number of people approximately every two days. <laughs> wow. Um, so that, that is a much, much higher rate of vaccination. The U.K. had vaccinated over a million. Um, so there was a number of countries ahead of us, including the U.S., the U.K., Um, and others uh, that that were vaccinating much faster. So that certainly is a vulnerability for the government because it is, a political issue that probably more people care about than any issue in a long time because it's directly affecting people's ability to be able to go back to work or to see people or to travel or to just go back to their lives um what we've seen with the government before is they've sort of under promised over delivered on vaccines not with this rollout uh but in this case you're going to see i think a little bit of that blaming back back and forth where they're going to blame the provinces say, you could be rolling it out faster if you were that worried. Uh, Just vaccinate as many people as fast as you can, and we'll get you the next dose as soon as we can. And the provinces are going to say, well, we're not going to do that because we're not going to set up vaccine clinics and then have them sitting idle because they've given all the shots. We're going to titrate them. Um, So I think that that's going to be an interesting little political arena to watch going forward.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and uh, we'll be front row and centre. I think a lot of Canadians are anxious to get the thing they're rolling, and they want to get that jab as soon as possible. Thanks for your time this morning, Mercedes. Thank you. That is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block.
0: and despite the warnings from government leaders and health officials, some of which you didn't heed their own warning, but that's another story, it seems a whole lot of Canadians chose to ignore the advice and had contact with people outside their households over the holidays. We're going to break down the Canadian holiday behavior with Public Affairs CEO at Ipsos, Daryl Bricker. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. So you've done some polling on this. And, and what did you discover about Canadians and how they behaved over the holidays?
3: Well, it's less about their behavior and more about their misbehavior. <laughs> about, about half of them said that, uh, that they uh, did actually break the rules. They gathered with people outside of their, uh, outside of their households during the holidays.
1: Wow. Uh, yeah. So 48% had some sort of in-person contact with someone outside their household. And and you even broke down the percentage of those people who gathered and mask wearing. And that's a fairly surprising number, too.
3: Yeah, the inside didn't wear a mask group is 61%. So more than half of that 48% saying that they'd broken the rules in a fairly, fairly fundamental way.
0: Broke the rules, didn't wear a mask. It, did you break it down by province as well or just look at the, the country as a whole? No, we
3: we looked at it by province. Alberta is pretty much close to uh, what you would expect uh, for the national average. The place where people were really uh, um, stepping outside of their households and gathering with other people uh, was Atlantic Canada. And it stands to reason. I mean, there's there's a real belief there that uh, the experience that they're having is somewhat different from the rest of the country. This Atlantic Canadian bubble seems to be something that's real.
1: You've got these numbers of the actions and and what took place uh, by Canadians over the holidays. But even before that, um, you know, people have opinions and they form opinions as far as, you know, whether or not the government should tell me that I can or cannot spend time with my family. So you have uh, some percentages to deal with that as well.
3: Yeah, 27% said that. Now, what's interesting also when you take a look at these data, because we've been looking at this for a while now, and we asked people to predict what they were going to do during the holidays. This was prior to uh, uh, this survey, obviously, and prior to the Christmas holidays. And uh, people said that they were going to follow the rules. And the interesting thing is, among this 48%, they don't really feel that what they did was wrong. They also feel that um, what they did is not going to lead to an increase in, in, in the uh, the case count for COVID. In fact, 85, uh, 85% of the people who said that they broke the rules mm-hmm. uh, said that it's not going to contribute to uh, a greater increase in uh, in the spread of the pandemic. So uh-huh. the problem is that people think that they've modified their behavior, even though they're not following the rules, combined with the fact that when they do break the rules, it's not going to lead to any negative consequence.
0: Hmm. So, OK, so one in 10 said they felt a little guilty about their behavior. <laughs> But how many of them? I'm curious because I know you looked into this. How many hid the fact that they were doing things they knew were they were not supposed to do?
3: Yeah, we asked that specifically about travel. So about two percent of the population said that uh, that they uh, travel out of the province. Two percent said that well, they went somewhere out of the country, and another three said they went to a, a, some sort of a holiday property. So about seven or eight percent of the people population overall. Which is a, you know when you look at the actual numbers, that's actually a pretty big number. And one in ten of them said that they misled people about what they're not who were doing it. So they said, I, I broke the rules. I broke them in a really fundamental way, and I lied about it.
1: So, Darrell, we had a texter say uh, going to someone uh, else's house was not breaking the rules for singles. Uh, was that question asked, or how was the question asked? Because I'm, I'm thinking that if you're asking Canadians, uh, was it just did you break the rules in your region? Because rules did vary across the nation.
3: Yeah, what we were seeing was that people were gathering in their communities. So that the idea that they weren't um, you know, going out of, uh, out of province or going to other countries or doing any of those other things, yeah, that was a really small number. I mean, when you add it all up, about 7%, 8% of the population. And different groups of the population were doing different things. So singles to singles, I think, was about 20% of the number that we're talking about here. But um, the, the biggest part of the number was actually families gathering with other families, Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, among, under, uh, among youth people, 18 to 35, although 35 is not exactly youthful, um, mm-hmm. uh, those were the people who are most likely to be breaking it on multiple occasions. I don't, think, it, I don't think that's, ter-
0: that's not terribly uh, surprising, yeah. though, is it, Daryl? Thank you so much for the numbers. I just, I guess, to show you what we all got up to over the holidays and, and how much we actually lied about it, too. <laughs> thanks for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thanks. That's Daryl Bricker, Ipsos Public Affairs CEO. Political unrest continues stateside after last week's storming of Capitol Hill and the start of new impeachment discussions. With her take on the current political landscape, Wendy Schiller is a professor of public and international affairs in the Department of Political Science at Brown University and joins us now. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. Thanks so much for being here with us. Uh, Boy, it just continues to to get even more, you know, sort of crazy in terms of the news that we're hearing out of the U.S. now. With word yesterday that the FBI was looking at potential violence that's been, uh, you know, talked about hitting all 50 uh, states at the same time. So it just seems to get more and more extreme as to what's going on in the U.S. right now, doesn't it?
3: Well,
4: I think that there, of course, they want to take every precaution. What we saw was an epic fail of security for our nation's elected leaders in the Senate and the House, including the vice president of the United States. It was a stunning uh, epic fail for Americans. I mean, I think most of us. You know, if anybody's ever been to Washington, there's a fair amount of security. It's very difficult to get into the Capitol, actually, unattended. You you know, it's it's hard. And most of us say, how do they possibly storm the gates, literally? Uh, And I think that you know, there was a a breach in Michigan. Um, You know, maybe some of your listeners are familiar with that a couple of weeks ago, six weeks ago or so, where they stormed the Michigan Capitol. We had a sort of occupation in Wisconsin a couple of years ago, Uh, but they they're getting more and more violent. And this is something that has really shaken, you know, the average American, most Americans to their core. It's not something that we expect. We have violence in America. We have uh, obviously a lot of gun violence, Um, but this kind of thing is something we expect to be prevented by security. And we have seen that that just simply did not happen last week.
1: Uh, Professor, we've heard that, you know, uh, this inauguration on the 20th will look different than any inauguration, perhaps in the history of inaugurations, Uh, but also the security, uh, I'm assuming, and I'm not sure if you have any further details on how much further it will be ramped up as a result of the actions that took place last Wednesday.
4: I think what, you're, what what we're going to expect to see, and I think, first of all, um, I think what we saw uh, in the evening last Wednesday night was extraordinary as well. We had all of these members of the House and Senate who were literally under attack, you know, really fearing and running for their lives from this from this mob. And, and about five and a half hours after that, they went back into their chambers, respectively. The vice president presided, uh, and they spent uh, from 8 o'clock in the evening till about 3.30, almost 4 o'clock in the morning continuing the process of certifying the election peacefully and came to a peaceful resolution where they affirmed uh, Vice President uh, Joe Biden's president elect Joe Biden's uh, victory in the election which is extraordinary also they didn't go home they didn't run away forever they went back in and that's exactly why President Biden will get inaugurated um, on the steps of the Capitol he understands the symbolism is extraordinary you have to do that you have to show the American people you can get a handle on security So I think that's what's going to happen. But uh, there'll be a huge perimeter, uh, something we've never seen before, you know, probably at least a mile, if not two miles, literally, where there's nobody allowed near uh, the Capitol, which is unprecedented uh, in inauguration. And inaugurations haven't been that big a deal. Um, You know, it's gotten much more pomp and circumstance in the last 25 to 50 years. Prior to that, it was not really such a big ceremony.
0: Beyond the inauguration, Professor, do you think just the security that will surround, you know, newly elected President Joe Biden once he is sworn in, will it be just, you know, extreme for his entire term, do you think? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a
4: it's a sad and excellent question. I think we, what we do know is that President Obama, the first African-American uh, president of the United States, had an extraordinary amount of security as well and uh, the largest number of death threats. Uh, Of any sitting president up until you know his presidency so we know that the Secret Service uh, was successful in protecting President uh, Obama uh, and they'll have to bring the same level of security if not even higher to President Biden and certainly Vice President Kamala Harris but what we're seeing that's so frightening for everybody is that these threats are being made against average members of Congress and they don't have that same kind of security they travel back and forth as you've seen they've now had to have guards uh, guard them in airports uh, when they travel this is extraordinary, and this is not the America that most people in America want to live in. So this is the big question mark. Does America come to the table in the next six to nine months and act as a community at the local level, state level, national level to just tamp down and you know rid ourselves of these kinds of threats? That's the big challenge we face over the next, I would say, at least six to nine months. And you know how we do on that, um, I, I just don't have an answer for you today. But it's certainly, I think, in addition to COVID, our biggest challenge, right
1: Right now, Yeah, I, I would think that mm-hmm. so many challenges. What a crazy year. But back to the election process an election that has never, uh, you know, uh, been seen before. And the continuing process with just eight days until the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. I'm wondering, in there's still that talk of impeachment. Is it even a an uh, possibility with just over a week? And why would that be important to people? Because there's only eight days left.
4: So the justification for impeachment, which is uh, similar to indictment, so it's just a leveling of charges, a filing of charges against the president. The Senate, we have a you know split bicameral uh, national legislature, the Senate has to hold the trial. According to the Constitution, I just did my homework this morning and reread it for you, um, the, it doesn't say the Senate has to hold the trial. It just says once somebody's impeached, the Senate holds the trial. The problem is you can't get the trial started until the Democrats take uh, majority party control of the Senate, which will happen after Vice President uh, Kamala Harris is inaugurated, sits in the Senate, it'll be 50-50, and she'll break the tie, organize the Senate in favor of the Democrats. They would have to hold the trial. And the problem with that politically uh, is that that's the first uh, couple weeks of the Biden presidency. Mm-hmm. So you'll just turn all the attention away from Biden and back to Trump because of the trial. So there's a political problem as well as a logistical problem, he'll be out of office. What's the point of having a trial if the person's already literally out of office? It's to bar him from running again. But I just don't know that the cost of taking away all that energy from Biden uh, is worth it. We don't know what the world will look like four years from now. So this is a big problem for the Democratic Party. They want to make a statement in the House of Representatives, the president incited an insurrection and really sicked a mob uh, onto the members of the Congress and, you know, uh, uh, threatened their lives. So they want to make a statement and they have the power to do that, you know, that it will actually remove the president. Nobody really thinks that's going to happen. And then you get yourself into a circumstance where are you really, you know, abusing the process by doing this when you know that the Senate trial will be in effect moot. Uh, and, that, and that's a big question mark. They're going to go forward anyway. There's enough passion to make the statement. But it's unclear in the long run that it is really the, either a smart
0: political move or even a smart symbolic move right now. Well, the eyes of the world, Professor, are definitely on the United States right now as we head towards the inauguration and, let's face it, beyond too. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure we'll check in with you again another time. Appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure. Thanks. That is Professor Wendy Schiller with the Public and International Affairs Department of Political Science at Brown
1: University. 8.50 on the morning news. As the pandemic continues, Calgary's biggest event of the year is looking for ways to safely host events in July. For details, we're joined by Dana Peers, the interim CEO of the Calgary Stampede. Good morning to you, Dana.
5: Good morning, and thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for being here. I know it's six months away, but the question, many Calgarians, particularly after missing last year's edition of the Stampede, many Calgarians are asking, will the Stampede be back in the saddle this summer?
5: Well, I'm certainly optimistic, and uh, we are, as an organization, certainly planning. Uh, planning is currently underway for the 2021 Calgary Stampede.
0: I mean Dana we know with Stampede you pretty much plan year round for as soon as the the first one is over you're planning for the next one so but how do you how do you kind of plan for something when there's so much that's just up in the air at this point
5: well, you're right. I mean, it is a it is a challenge, but uh, I think that uh, we've got an incredible group of employees and uh, some very energized uh, volunteers all uh, thinking hard about uh, how we can safely proceed with uh, the Gallery Stampede come July. We're certainly working with our partners, uh, uh, both of the city, uh, uh, AM, uh, Alberta Health Services as well as SEMA, certainly trying to understand what the restrictions might look like uh, come July and uh, adapt accordingly.
1: And I understand you look at other uh, like events, if you will, and, uh, and some of those might be rodeos that have taken place in North America over the past little while.
5: Sure. So, you know, last month, of course, uh, the National Finals Rodeo uh, went ahead in Arlington, Texas. Uh, it was certainly an interesting uh, event for us to take a look at. Of course, that event's typically held in Las Vegas. Um, the the Vegas facility uh, holds about 15,000 people. Um, of course, with social distancing, that would have reduced their attendance greatly. So they moved to Arlington uh, to an arena that held uh, 40,000 people. Yeah. And so all of a sudden uh, they could start to meet some of the guidelines that were in place for them uh, with regards to physical distancing and so forth. And, uh, you know, we're very, very fortunate in that we have a, uh, you know, an outdoor event, the uh, greatest outdoor show on earth and, and uh, over 200 acres at Stampede Park. And uh, so we're trying to reimagine that and think about uh, uh, how we use that space and how we might be able to uh, uh, you know physically distance and and be able to uh, produce a calgary stampede 2021
0: when it rains on the stampede grounds it's it's a bad thing but in this case it, it perhaps is a really good thing that it is so much outdoor so dana are you pretty confident to say though there will be some form of calgary stampede in 2021
5: We're we're certainly working towards that. Uh, Of course, I I don't have a crystal ball, uh, but I'm very optimistic. And uh, I even look at 2020 as much as uh, it was a very difficult uh, year for us. And and, uh, having to cancel the 2020 Calgary Stampede, we were still able to engage with our community. And uh, I believe that in 2021, we'll be able to have something much closer to what uh, a regular Calgary Stampede would be.
1: And you think that, you know, we'll we'll know in the next few months, but having said that, you can probably feel the anticipation. Calgarians need a stampede, right? Mm -hmm.
5: Well, I think Calgary needs the Calgary Stampede. Uh, uh, You know, we certainly know what sort of economic impact it has on the entire uh, community and uh, our hotels, uh, our rideshare, restaurants, bars, Mm -hmm. uh, everybody. Uh, It's a substantial uh, impact, and uh, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that uh, uh, we can ride again.
1: Well, I know where my boots are, so I think uh, I'm ready to rock (laughs) and roll anyway. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Dana. We appreciate it.
5: Well, thank you very much, and have a good day.
1: You too. That is Dana Pierce, interim CEO of the Calgary Stampede.